Schoolboys as young as 10 were involved in a massive homosexual child vice ring, a court was told yesterday. Police investigating a child sex ring in Southend have uncovered a link to a notorious London paedophile gang. Essex local newspaper The Yellow Advertiser's tenacity yielded some astonishing results. Essex police have announced a review of the facts of the case and they're appealing for victims to come forward. Our last episode ended in summer 1989. A paedophile nicknamed Dodgy Dave, whose real name was Dennis King, and his associate, a local businessman called Brian Tanner, had just been arrested and remanded into custody after a number of boys reported being abused. Professionals had identified 14 victims. Three charities have been asked to support the affected families. They were the Rayner Project, the Children's Society, and the NSPCC. Both King and Tanner, the charity workers would learn, had previously been prosecuted for sexually abusing boys. Since the early 1980s, King had been living under a pseudonym, David Jansen. In fact, during the course of my investigation, I discovered that the last time King had been convicted before the Shubury case, in 1982, he'd managed to pass through the entire justice system under the name David Jansen. This was despite the authorities knowing he was really called Dennis King, because the convictions appeared on Dennis King's criminal record. So why had a notorious paedophile been allowed to use a fake name in court? This was just one of many peculiarities in the way he had been dealt with by the authorities throughout the decades. But the biggest peculiarities would occur in the 1989-1990 Shubury paedophile ring investigation. These next three episodes will detail how the charity workers saw the case take a series of strange and sinister turns. The story that follows is corroborated not only by the charity workers' matching testimonies, but also by hundreds of pages of contemporaneous paperwork, which some sources hung on to for three decades, long after all the records held by official bodies either mysteriously vanished or were deliberately destroyed. Jenny Grinstead, a former Essex social worker who now worked for the Children's Society, was brought in to coordinate the three charities' work. These kids were suffering from the consequences and nothing, they were, and nothing could be done. There was a two-year wait for child guidance. So we were the opportunity to set up a therapeutic resource for children that had been identified by other agencies, police and social services, that they needed help. The charities quickly discovered King, Tanner and the 14 victims were the tip of an iceberg. Boys began disclosing the names of other children they'd seen with the paedophiles. Eventually, the list of suspected victims exceeded 60, and social services paperwork from June 1989 suggested there could be at least one earlier wave of older boys who'd already passed through the men's hands. But the boys didn't only name other victims. They also started talking about other places and other perpetrators. Here's Chris Hickey from The Rayner Project. We find out that what's happening is two or three boys are bundled into the car, driven to different places and locations, and are being sexually assaulted by other people. And that this is first local, and then they're talking about going to London, and then they're talking about parties. 
So from private experiences in private rooms and private houses, it becomes more and more public and it becomes more and more monstrous and more and more incomprehensible. In the last episode, we heard from a victim who we're calling Ben to protect his identity. He was brought to the paedophiles by his friend, who we're calling Max. When I spoke to Ben, he told me that during his police interview, he told officers that more men were involved than just King and Tanner. His words from that interview are being read here by an actor. Sometimes I would go around there and you would kind of get turned away. I remember one time there was this guy with King and there was a young boy with them. And they said, no, 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 we can't do it today, we're busy, we're not going to show any films today. And Max said, oh, that's whatever his name was. I mentioned two other names, and as far as I know, only two people were done. Different victims were assigned to different charities for therapy, so with the permission of their managers, staff from all three charities began meeting regularly to pool the intelligence and then share it with the police. They were given a liaison officer to pass the information on to. They called their group Paedophile Information Gathering, or PIG. Here's Chris reading an excerpt from the minutes of one of the PIG meetings. A boy, as identified to a member of the network group, houses in four streets in South End, where he claims to have been taken by King and Tanner. He claims that other adults were present at the time and that King was dealing with them in some way. A boy has stated to members of the network group that he was taken by King and Tanner to two nightclubs in the South End area where he was sexually assaulted by other adults. Rob West worked with the boys at the Rayner Project, while psychologist Robin Jamieson's department treated some of the boys. Both men, whose careers have involved extensive work with sex offenders, said the setup the boys were describing was common. They were grooming dozens of boys. Yeah, yeah. And it had to be a business. They created an industry. It, it, it was men an were economic coming. activity as well as sexual. And some yeah. were taken elsewhere as well. But all of them seemed to locate themselves in CCS, but then they would always seem to have a London or city link as well. Links to London were soon reported by the boys. The first set of pig minutes which has survived the intervening three decades is from November 1989 and shows that by then, one boy had already identified two men involved in abuse at a Shoebury pub. Minutes from a meeting the following month, in December 1989, show that one of the charity workers, who we're calling Mr X because he remains scared that there will be repercussions for speaking out, had spoken to the police about evidence they possessed of a wider ring. Here's an excerpt from the December 1989 minutes, read by Chris Hickey. Jack, shown three houses, has been taken to, drugged and buggered by King, house in East London, Mr X, met officers, book of addresses from King's place. The first mention in the surviving paperwork of the book seized by police from Dennis King's flat was in the very first multi-agency meeting called by Essex County Council in June 1989, weeks after King and Tanner were arrested. In 2018, Mr X told me more about his discussion with the police about the book. His words from our interview are being spoken by an actor to preserve his anonymity. They told me about the diary, that they found a book that was very interesting. There was references to tykes, apparently. That was their slang for kids, and it had names and phone numbers in. It was essentially them boasting that they had turned over his flat and this is what we found. Minutes from the next pig meeting reveal that by January 1990, 
the professionals had been given four home addresses in South End used for abuse. They'd also uncovered evidence of boys being abused elsewhere. Meeting places identified by the victims included a car park, a toilet block, an underpass, two pubs, and two clubs. Here's Chris with a small excerpt from the minutes. Victims' names have been changed. Chris Hickey said that most kids said that drugs were involved in the photos. Jack and Alfie say they were buggered. Other sexual acts also. Portlink. Harold Hill. Videos and photos taken by man in Havering. Jack taken by King, also to Basildon. It wasn't long before other sources began corroborating what the children were saying about more men being involved. In addition to coordinating the charity's work, Jenny was asked to write two reports for social services about the ring, one giving an overview of the situation and how it had arisen, the other documenting the damage to the victims. To inform her report, she organised interviews with officials, experts and local agencies. One was Councillor David Cockgrove, who represented Shubury on Essex County Council. Her typewritten notes from that interview survive. Here's Jenny reading an excerpt. Meeting with Councillor Cotgrove, 4th of December, 1989. Very indiscreet interview with Councillor Cotgrove, senior member for education, is area senior local member, education committee. On the side of the children, Governor at Shoebury High School, Shoebury sexing not new, A says high up people involved. A says high-up people involved. Unfortunately, we don't know who A is, but just let that sink in. The politician elected to represent the interests of the people in the local area, according to interview notes, said that he knew all about the ring. The notes went on. They said that he knew of and was willing to share information about police and local government corruption linked to the case. Sadly, when I tried to track him down, I discovered he died some years ago. Councillor Cockgrove's comment that there were high-up people involved in the abuse was echoed by an unnamed detective who spoke to two Mirror journalists in 1989. We heard an excerpt from that story at the end of the last episode. It said civil servants and businessmen were implicated and quoted the detective saying, The information we found means there are a few very important men around here who are running scared. But just how important were they? Well, in late 1989, the group started receiving disturbing disclosures from several boys. They told the workers that one regular visitor to Dennis King's flat had been a police officer. One of the first boys to speak was Jack, who said the officer had attended the flat on one occasion when Jack was present. He didn't see the officer but he was in trouble with the police so often that he recognised his voice. On its own, this voice identification might not seem like an especially reliable piece of evidence, but Jack was only one of several children who started naming this officer to the charity workers. It was at around this time when the charity workers started forwarding on intelligence about this named police officer that they felt attitudes towards them starting to change. Here's Jenny describing how, as 1989 moved into 1990, she received a strange phone call from the group's liaison officer, who then disappeared. 
a police officer I'd known many years in, in Chelmsford who was acting inspector down here rang me at home to tell me and Doreen, my secretary, if we were going to meetings, to be very careful where we parked, to look underneath the car. For that police officer, who was a real, you know, he was a blunt old boy, but my God, he was not. I, I've been out on child abuse inquiries with him knocking on the door and, he, you know, he just says straight out what's what. Um, and that day that he warned me, it was January, uh, we were going for a meeting the next day and he'd been removed from the post. Okay. Scary. You were, you were, it was scary meeting, stuff. Meeting him the next day. Yeah, as as part of Pig. Yeah. Okay. It was and a Pig. When you got there, he wasn't there. Jenny told me more about this incident in another interview. And he, I just said to him, he said, I can't. He said, I can't tell you anymore. But I said, I'll see you tomorrow. And when we got there, he wasn't there. And when we asked where he was, we were told he'd been moved. I traced that police officer who disappeared from the case. He was long since retired, and his number was ex-directory, so I sent him a letter explaining my investigation and asking if he'd speak to me. A few days later, I received a message from the Essex Police Press Office, saying he'd asked them to communicate to me that he did not wish to speak. His replacement as the group's liaison officer by Bob Fuel caused problems, several of the charity workers said, because Fuel regularly showed up for work smelling of booze. He meant well, they all agreed, but he was ineffective. As this series unfolds, he will become an increasingly important figure. With the other officer's disappearance and Fuel's arrival, said Chris Hickey, it seemed like all of the steam suddenly went out of the police investigation. So as the investigation starts, they bring in real detectives, quotes unquote, real police officers who are investigating this as a serious crime. And it's what you would expect as a citizen. So everything starts off absolutely in a way that was fine. And, you know, they're cracking on. After a period of time, woof, all the air goes out of the investigation, all the drive. And it becomes, yeah, oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if we get around to it, we'll deal with it. And the whole thing, it's very clear the police are not pursuing it in the way that we are so i described the process a few minutes ago where as we explore and talk to the children it is clear that this is a much bigger thing than two guys in a house in shubri ness it's absolutely crystal clear the police believe us it's absolutely unequivocal that this is happening on a bigger scale than this at some period we suddenly are back down to this house, these two men, this limited edition of the crime. And you think, why? A strong line of belief and theory is that people were leaned on, officers. There are individual officers who were very keen to, to proceed, but at senior levels, it was quite clear we've done enough. The suspicion of officers being leaned on wasn't Chris's initial conclusion. He'd originally chalked it up to the existing friction between the police force and charities like the Rayner Project. Many officers saw charity workers and social workers as do-gooders who frustrated their work. They believed, quite simply, that if a child committed a crime, they should be punished for it and go to jail. Rayner specialised in keeping the kids out of jail, instead working to identify problems at home or at school or elsewhere that might be causing them to offend. In many cases, police officers felt that this undermined their work. 
So at first, Chris thought the authorities' response was due to an underlying antipathy about the charities, particularly Rayner, and about the boys at the heart of the case. This was the time the government were advertised, had an advertising campaign on keeping your car safe. And they used pictures of jackals hanging around cars and the association with these kind of feral wild animals and car thieves was being made officially on the television by the government. So offenders are hyenas, and how you deal with them is a short, sharp shock, and what you do is you send them to prison. And when Rainer Foundation started in Southend, 52 kids from Southend would be sent to prison every single year. And we're going, hang on, these aren't dangerous people. And prison is a very, very expensive way of making bad people worse. We pioneered a new system for working with young people, and after three years, none were going to prison. All were being capable of being dealt with successfully in the community. See, part of what the police response was, was, well, they're doing it anyway. It's their choice, right? At some level, these are, you know, scallywags, scamps, hyenas. So if bad things are happening to them, bad things are happening to the right people, you know? So I'm not that bothered. In episode one, we heard from Sammy, who grew up on the estate alongside the victims and had known about what was going on in King's flat. He agreed with Chris Hickey saying he believed that the police officer's contempt for the boys may have impacted their response. Yeah, they treated them as scum. If, they, if, if, if these were kids of, of families that weren't involved with the police and the kids weren't causing so much trouble for the police, I think the police would have definitely looked into it more and things would have been dealt with quicker. But as events continued to unfold, suspicions grew about the real reasons behind the changing tone of the group's interactions with the police. As news of their work spread throughout the child protection community, other professionals started contacting them to express concerns about the police and social services. Some of the reports were connected to the Shubury Ring, and some of them weren't. They ranged from concerns about institutional or structural problems, to concerns about the safety of certain individuals. Among the complaints about police officers were increasing reports about the officer first named by Jack. One set of pig minutes summarised the allegations against the officer as photographs, girls, drugs, and blackmail. Other boys said they'd seen him at King's flat. They also linked him to a second flat in the block adjacent to King's. In that flat lived a vulnerable young woman who we're calling Susie. She's dead now, but we've chosen to disguise her identity following a request from her family. Susie had left home in her mid-teens and relocated to the Eagle Way estate. A heroin addict, she was rumoured to be dealing drugs out of her flat. A large number of the boys linked to King and Tanner were also linked to Susie's flat. They would gather there to smoke cannabis and sniff glue. Several boys reported that Susie and one or two underage girls were regularly visited in the flat by police officers who paid them for sex. One of the officers they named was the same officer who'd been seen at King's flat. Mr. X, who we heard from earlier, worked with Susie through his charity, in addition to working with the boys. His words are again voiced by an actor. She was a very unfortunate person, a very unfortunate set of circumstances. I think she was dealing out a bit of weed and stuff like that at the time. She was a heroin addict. I can remember having a debate with a GP on whether to prescribe her methadone or not. She was regularly visited by police officers for sex. There was another young girl at a flat who was used for sex by police. Another very sad case. She's dead now. 
We counted about 40 boys with links to both King's flat and Susie's flat. Sammy, who we heard from earlier, was not a visitor to Dennis King's flat, but did grow up on the estate and knew several of the victims. He revealed in episode 1 that King had sold Valium and other drugs to the estate's children and heroin addicts. When I interviewed him, he named Susie as one of King's customers. He also told me a story about a bent copper, meaning a corrupt police officer, which corroborated the stories the victims had told to the charity workers 30 years earlier. We'll hear more about Susie as the series continues, but for now, back to 1990, as the charity workers were becoming increasingly concerned about the police investigation. As they passed on intelligence about the officer and others who worked in official roles, they began to experience what they felt were gentle warnings. Minutes from a pig meeting in early 1990 show one of the charity workers was approached by a police source who advised that the officer at the centre of the allegations, named as visiting both King's and Susie's flats, was not happy with them. Then, the diary that was seized from King's flat, and was said to contain names, addresses and references to children, reportedly went missing from police custody. This was the one piece of physical evidence that the charity workers knew of which pointed towards the existence of a wider ring. It might have corroborated the boy's intelligence, but now it had vanished. How could the police lose something so important? Some involved in the case had felt the police's attitude was off from the beginning. Here's Ben, who we heard from in episode one, who was procured for King and Tanner by his school friend Max. When we spoke, he described the day the police showed up at his door. His words are being voiced by an actor. It was all really weird. It was not as I, as an adult, would expect it to be like. It was all rushed. Nobody could really be bothered. It was like they were going through the motions. When the police showed up, I remember one of the coppers was really agitated. He kept pacing, going out of the lounge and coming back in. He kept asking me what happened and I wouldn't answer at first. When I finally said, I remember they used our landline to phone someone. And then they kind of said, OK then. It's just weird. They sort of left straight away. The other victim we heard from in the last episode, Zach, whose abuse began at age eight or nine, had a similar experience. Again, his words will be read by an actor to protect his anonymity. I was so young then, it's all really a blur to me now, because it was all done when mum and dad were there and the police came round and it was all a bit shifty then. What do you mean by shifty? Well, they were trying to question me by saying it wasn't really true. They didn't really take it all on board, the police. So they were telling you that they thought you were lying? Mm-hmm. At the time, yeah. It was all a horrible situation for me. Rob West, who worked at the Rayner Project, also had less than fond memories of the way some officers had approached the case from the start. He recalled one officer attending the Rayner Project to speak to one of the victims, but treating him so rudely that the boy retreated and refused to cooperate, effectively sabotaging that line of inquiry. So I remember a particular sergeant who came, and more or less the exact words, but my memory was, OK, son, tell us who nonced you up. That, that was what was said. That immediately created a reaction in the boy where he just walked out of the room and didn't give a statement. He told me so much, so eloquently. For several years, the Rayner Project had succeeded in preventing young offenders in Southend from being jailed. But after Jack started talking about the Shubury paedophile ring, his treatment by the authorities 
suddenly seemed to become more hostile and aggressive. There appeared to be a concerted effort to put him behind bars, beyond the reach of the charity workers. Here's Mr. X. The way they went after poor old Jack as well. Jack's thing was stealing motors and driving them about, and his behaviour escalated as all this started coming out, as it would do. But instead of going to court and the CPS saying, well yeah, the boy done this, but can we look at some alternative things to custody? They wanted to bang the kid up. Concerns about Jack's worsening treatment were raised as early as Essex Council's first multi-agency meeting in June 1989. Then, again, in another Essex Council meeting in October 1989. In one meeting, in March 1990, Chris Hickey reported hearing a police officer say about Jack that they needed to get him locked up. Days later, in another meeting, Minutes reported Chris Hickey said he was frightened for Jack. But despite the workers' rising concerns, minutes from pig meetings up until January 1990 show that police were telling the group they planned to launch a wider investigation. Here's an excerpt from the minutes of a meeting held on January 26, 1990, read by Jenny. The officer in charge committed police to acting on this info to starting a fresh operation. Each member of the meeting would meet with police to make a full statement. Police will collate all info act upon it, and start a new operation. Then, on February 20th, 1990, Jenny attended a meeting with Bob Fuel. Her notes of the meeting read as follows. He is meeting with senior officer tomorrow. Pressing Thames Corridor info, Stratford, Corringham, Hackney, broad paedophile inquiry. As Chris Hickey said earlier, there were some individual officers who seemed keen to investigate properly but they weren't given the resources to do so, and in the case of Bob Fuel, appeared incapable of doing so anyway. Here's Mr X giving his thoughts about Bob Fuel. Bob Fuel was a diamond fella, but was out of his depth. I think he meant well, but he got told to shut up. Both of the officers we got assigned were completely out of their depth. We used to call them Cheech and Chong, which probably tells you what we thought about how good they were. Bob was sort of like a larger-than-knife character. One minute he was serious... The next minute he would be, way. He seemed quite happy, to be honest with you, to just poodle along at his own slow rate. He wasn't exactly Inspector Clouseau, but he certainly weren't no Sherlock Holmes either, you know? I guess he was between a rock and a hard place, because he's got us kicking him from one side, and then he goes to his boss and says, I need your help, and his boss is saying, no, you can't have it. According to surviving contemporaneous paperwork, Somebody above fuel was saying much worse than that. In early March 1990, roughly two weeks after fuel had said he was going to push for a full investigation into the wider ring, Mr. X and a colleague bumped into fuel at a South End pub called the Elms. Fuel was a bit worse for wear and blurted out to the pair of them, By the way, I've been asked by my boss to do a hatchet job on you lot. This incident was recorded contemporaneously, Twice. First, in the minutes of the next pig meeting, which was held just two days after the encounter. Here's Jenny reading the minutes. He had described Mr X's van to him and told him to be careful when driving. He knew Mr X's van. The incident was then recorded in an urgent memo Chris Hickey sent to his manager at the Rayner Foundation's head office. Here's Chris reading an excerpt from that memo. This conversation has naturally caused us a great deal of concern. At worst, it indicates that at some level, an attempt may be made to discredit, or worse, 
one of the group. In the aftermath of the hatchet job threat, as King and Tanner's trial neared, the charity workers would find themselves plunged into a living nightmare. Thank you for listening to this episode of Unfinished. It was written by me, Charles Thompson, and edited by Tom Bristow. If you'd like to support our work, please visit presspatreon.com forward slash unfinishedpodcast.html. All money raised will help fund the costs of future episodes. If you found this episode interesting, please leave us a review on your podcast provider or mention it to a friend. Thank you. From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant.